the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Tiffany McTaggart and I am delighted to be speaking to Neil Thompson of Caverton Mill Farm near Kelso as part of the Forward Thinking Farmers series of podcasts. Neil is an arable farmer who has diversified and currently grows vegetables and blueberries. Hi Neil. Hi Tiffany, how are you? I'm good, thank you, how are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, Can you start by introducing yourself? Oh gosh, where do I start Tiffany? Um, Neil Thompson, uh, I'm a farmer at Caverton Mill, as you probably just said earlier on. Um, I've been farming for a long time now, since I came home uh, back in 1987 or 88, I think it was, I came home to farm. Um, So it's quite a long time now. Yeah. And I farmed with my brother, Keith, Uh, the two of us worked together farming about uh, 650 acres at Caverton Mill. We've got 250 acres of land up the road that we own. And um, we also contract farm, Blake Law Farm, just up the road from Main House. So, yeah, that's the sort of scope of the land that we're looking after. So what attracted you to a career in farming? That's a very good question. I think uh, one, one of the unfortunate things in some ways about becoming a, being a farmer's son is that you, you, know, you kind of uh, end up in a farmer's role without realising it at times. Well, I have absolutely no regrets about that because it's been a great, uh, it's a great way of life. It's a great um, way to, uh, to uh, it's a great career to be in, particularly now, I think, for young people. But um, I actually just uh, almost fell, fell into it, if you know what I mean. Very good. Uh, so can you tell me a bit more about what you grow on your farm and the enterprises which you have? Well, we, uh, we are basically a traditional uh, arable farm with um, some beef cattle um, but uh, so these crops that are grow- the crops that are grown in that uh, are, are basically wheat and spring barley and uh, a little bit of uh, beans or oils uh, or very seldom do we grow oil drape but uh, oats uh, are starting to become part of the rotation um, we let out land for potatoes and uh, as I say, on the contract farm, we grow actually quite a lot of oil rape in that one, so that's a bit confusing maybe, but uh, we don't grow oil rape here on, on Caverton Mill because I try to keep the land as clean as possible from brassicas because I'm a, quite a big broccoli grower. And uh, as you probably well know, broccoli is a, is a brassica and uh, brassicas and uh, oil rape don't necessarily mix in the same rotation. So I have quite a lot of broccoli. And then only four years ago now, um, we started uh, growing blueberries uh, under polytunnels. So uh, we've kind of diversified away from uh, the traditional uh, local borders farm. (laughs) Very good. So what made you decide to start growing broccoli? Well, again, it's a long time since I started growing broccoli. Um, Funnily enough, it, it was a friend of mine who was working for the cooperative that uh, we supply back in 1980, gosh, just actually when I came home, I think it was 19, no, it was 1990 I started growing broccoli, uh, or 91, 91, I think it was 1991 it was actually. 
And we started growing broccoli simply because a friend of mine um, was uh, working for the company called East Scotland Growers, and he was desperately trying to persuade people in this part of the world to 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 uh, to grow broccoli. And at the time, we were uh, growing potatoes, uh, not necessarily on a large scale. And I was looking for opportunities to try and uh, diversify this business. And maybe I could see that potatoes were going to be either, you were either in them in a big way or out of them altogether. And we chose in some ways to go out of them rather than stay in them and uh, concentrate on the broccoli enterprise. So in a way, you have to blame my good friend, Nigel, who um, uh, is, would you believe, still working in the, in the vegetable world, but uh, he's the one that got me persuaded to, to grow broccoli. And in some ways it was, a, um, you know, he could see that our farm suited, uh, suited growing broccoli a little bit and um, uh, in as much as we've got quite light land and also we had some irrigation equipment at the time as well. And it just seemed to me to be a, a relatively good idea. Um, with the first year we started growing 20 acres and it seemed like a huge task and a huge worry growing 20 acres but now we're actually growing over 200 so uh, um, whether that's a that big difference or not, well it is a big difference but I remember the first year growing 20 acres it was a bit of a worry and we had to my father was still involved in the farm at the time and he was very anxious about it and wasn't sure what on earth we were doing so we had to pace out every single uh, acre to make sure we didn't grow any more or any less than 20 acres. It had to be just exactly 20 acres. Um, and I, would you believe the very first year I had a bit of an in, uh, <laughs> a disaster because uh, I managed to actually contaminate my uh, sprayer with some rather lethal herbicide and killed off, oh dear. would you believe, seven acres of broccoli in the very first year. <laughs> so I, I learned oh a lesson the hard way uh, about growing uh, making sure your your sprayer is actually very clean before you go anywhere near these crops. <laughs> yeah, clearly you didn't give up though, so I'm guessing it went up up the way from there. Well, it's had its challenges, Tiffany. Don't you worry. Uh, it's had a lot of challenges. Um, uh, we've, uh, as you as you can imagine, uh, it, it's uh, quite a labour-intensive crop, and we have to rely on a lot of people uh, to come pick it. And uh, at the time, we used uh, local people, and uh, while they were uh, very good at the job, it was sometimes a little bit um, uh, temperamental about when uh, when you got these people. Now, sadly, broccoli can't wait; it has to be grown, it has to be harvested within a couple of days uh, of it being ripe. In fact, probably only even a day, depending on on the, on the weather. And as a result, uh, we had some fun and games with some uh, some of the local. Uh, staff that uh, used to come down uh, and pick it and I do remember um, if it had been uh, quite common riding for example uh, there would be uh, very few people turn up the next day for work. So if you're having problems with getting people how have you overcome that now? Well it must be about oh gosh I'm going back I think it's 16, 17 years or something like that since we started actually getting European labour to come and work in the place and uh, that has actually transformed the job, um, or it did transform the job. Uh, it made it much more um, reliable having the labour on, on farm. Uh, we used to uh, get people particularly from <coughs> Latvia, Lithuania and uh, Poland at that time. Um, there was a massive uh, change 
well, sorry, actually, to really rewind a little bit, but um, these people were all employed under what's, what was then known as the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Scheme. And it was a hugely successful scheme where it got people uh, from the Eastern Bloc at the time to come and uh, work in British farms under a very rigorously uh, policed uh, system. However, when these countries uh, became part of the European Union, um, they obviously had the rights, uh, understandably, to, to, to come and go as they, as they pleased. And so the uh, Seasonal Agricultural Workers Scheme was actually um, uh, disbanded and it, and it um, ceased to exist. And as a result, since then, we still had the Eastern European people, but it has become more and more challenging to, uh, to keep people uh, motivated and uh, um, uh, remain on the job uh, to, to get the job done. However, we've persevered and every year so far we've managed to get every single crop harvested one way or another. <laughs> so how long do these workers come over for? These guys are, well, we we start bringing them in, well, now that we've got the fruit out, so we have to bring them in a little bit earlier now, but we, we need um, uh, people in January for the fruit uh, to uh, to prune the fruit, so there's not many we needed that for that. There's maybe four or five people needed for that job. Then we need, we start getting more people again in uh, uh, end of May, beginning of June, and they're there to start planting the broccoli. Again, there's very little fruit work needing done at that time. Having set, um, uh, so we're concentrating on plant, planting the broccoli right through to the end of June, beginning um, middle. Sorry, the end of June, uh, middle of July, when we finish planting, ready for starting the harvest period, which is when we need the vast majority of the labour um, come on farm from the uh, middle of August. So we need about 30 people uh, in the middle of August for harvesting fruit and harvesting the vegetables. So whilst you've been growing broccoli, how have you found that things have changed and adapted to make it more efficient and progress? Well, it's, it's actually quite uh, a massive story in some ways in that um, East Scotland growers, I mean, we simply could not grow broccoli without the, the benefits of being a member of uh, East Scotland growers. Now, to give you some background, East Scotland growers is a cooperative set up about uh, 30 years, 30 something years ago. Uh, to grow broccoli and other uh, and cauliflower, uh, and uh, that that group has uh, evolved over the years, and it meant uh, and the mem I think the membership's down to about twenty odd people, but the acreage that the group grow is uh, oh gosh I can't even remember, but it's it's um, quite a lot. <laughs> oh, apologies for that. Um, uh, yeah, so we've got, uh, I think, 20-odd members growing around about, uh, I think it's 4,000 acres of broccoli altogether. Uh, uh, sorry, broccoli and cauliflower uh, in the group. And uh, we are supplying uh, most of the major retailers uh, in the fresh market, but also uh, a sizable proportion of the frozen market um, uh, in, in the UK. The um, East Scotland Growers are uh, a cooperative with 20-odd members and we grow, I think it's about 4,000 acres altogether. Um, 
supplying the fresh and the frozen market. Now, over the years, um, every single member was, was supplying both the fresh and the frozen market. But since, uh, well, it's evolved as, uh, uh, that actually it turns out that some members are growing specifically for one market or the other. And we happen to specialize um, particularly in the uh, frozen market. And the reason for that is quite simple, is because we're quite a long, long way away from uh, the pack houses um, and the major uh, uh, retailers' pack houses throughout the country. So, so we have decided to go down the frozen route uh, as part. So, of whereabout are these pack houses? Well, um, East of Scotland growers work closely with a company called Kettle Produce, which I'm sure you've heard of, and Kettle Produce and. Uh, East Scotland growers between them supply uh, most of the uh, major retailers um, in, in in Scotland, um, and that ha- kettle produce is actually near uh, um, Cooper and Fife, <coughs> as is East Scotland growers. So, so there is where the concentration of the pack houses and uh, um, uh, are, if you know what I mean. And as you can imagine, for me to get produce up there on a daily basis would actually be uh, prohibitive at the end of the day so um, our, yeah, our customer um, uh, is a company called Green Yards uh, and they are processing or freezing the broccoli uh, down in Boston and Lincolnshire so so we uh, um, supply that market <clears throat> and I think uh, this year we're as a group um, we're expected to supply uh Quite a lot of oh gosh, I think it's about eight thousand tons of broccoli or something like that going down there um, uh, for the freezing market, which you can imagine is. is um, it's a uh, lot of broccoli. Quite a lot of broccoli, yeah. So, uh, East of Scotland growers, as I say, has uh, specialised in uh, broccoli mainly, but they also they also do cauliflower, and we used to do a bit of cauliflower as well. But this year, uh, I took the decision to specialise in one crop only, uh, rather than the muddling up with the two and I think it has actually been a huge benefit to me not to have the, the cauliflower as well but um, as I say the key thing behind the, the, the vegetables uh, as a whole is the, is the existence of ESG as a uh, marketing organisation behind us because without them uh, there wouldn't be agronomy there wouldn't be uh, a, a, a sort of Marketing organi- an organisation of which you can um, uh, rely on to 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 help you grow the crop. So it's been a, a hugely uh, uh, important uh, part of my business over the last thirty odd years now. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, so what what do you think the difference is when you're just growing broccoli instead of trying to do broccoli and cauliflower? Is it just because you've got more focus on the one or Absolutely. is it because I they think, kind of clash think, on the timings? Well, I mean, last year was the last year I grew bro- uh, cauliflower and um, it just made life considerably harder, particularly when both crops are ready at once and you do have a limited amount of people that can physically get through that. Uh, that load of work, so we 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 decided that, that it was a better to uh, to simplify and uh, concentrate on doing one thing good rather than two things bad, <laughs> and uh, it has right. <laughs> been, been been a help. 
but uh, albeit my my life is complicated enough with having the fruit as well but there you go but <laughs> yeah, so. Mm. Um, so I also believe that when you're growing um, and harvesting your broccoli you've been trying to improve the efficiency can you tell oh, yeah. me a bit more about that yeah I mean there are ways of trying to become efficient and it's all about uh, and you can imagine that you know you've got uh, maybe 18 20 people that are directly involved in the broccoli and to it's very important that you motivate these people to work efficiently and uh, and also because it's, it's simply put the, the more that they or the harder they work the better they earn and for, from their point of view it's 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 uh, it's the way forward so we put in place good incentive. Start, yeah good incentives but instead of so we we, we trialed out um uh, a different harvesting method this year because we, you know, as you, as we, we process, as I say, for the freezing market, and uh, and what that involves is actually uh, um, floretting the broccoli into into florets that you um, small florets that, are, um, that you see in a bag, if you know what I mean. And I'm sure you all know what that was, looks like. But uh, <clears throat> so we specialise in doing that. But we used to do that in the field. And we used to basically have people chopping the, the heads of broccoli in the field. But it was becoming obvious that it was actually quite uh, inefficient in some ways. So we, we moved away from that and brought all the whole, the whole crop back into the farm and started processing it in the farm, into the florets of the farm. Now, while that's created logistical problems, it certainly improved the, uh, the, the amount of crop that I'd be getting off, off the fields as well overall. So it's been... It's had its challenges, uh, and this is the first year that we've actually properly done 100% of the crop that way. And it, but it, but I think it's uh, definitely paid off. Yeah. So, is there anything else you're wanting to talk about for the broccoli before we move on? Well, as I say, uh, um, the broccoli has had its challenges over the years, and it's been um, very difficult uh, in some over the years to 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 um, see. Uh, real reward in some of the years because it, it it can be really challenging, but not just with the weather, but with the marketplace as well. And you know, it's the same old story that uh, seems to be producing. Uh, we're working very, very hard uh, to to stand still. In some t- every year, it's getting more and more challenging. What you know, the cost of labour is inevitably going up. But um, sadly, our customers don't ever seem to be wanting to pay any more for the crop oh and I suppose in some ways um, you know it was only a few years ago that I was beginning to think that it's, it was an idea to, to, to diversify away from just growing uh, broccoli so it's just why we went into the, to the fruit and I suppose in some ways having dealt with uh, the realities of looking after people uh, living and working on the farm it seemed a natural choice in order to try and move uh, or you know the sort of so-called skills that I, I may or may not have in that department, um, bit to transfer them into into fruit production. So that was one of the drivers behind uh, me moving into the uh, fruit. Um, I could see, or I felt at the time that the broccoli was getting harder, more difficult, and I wanted to sort of diversify uh, and, and concentrate again on a less you know, a, a higher output from a smaller area. I think, you know, uh, I could see that uh, the, the um, 
the opportunity to to intensify your output from a relatively small area was was quite attractive. So we've now got nine acres of uh, tunnels, uh, polytunnels, which are have um, around about fourteen thousand plants of uh, blueberry plants um, growing underneath them. So that was a major shift um, four or five years ago. So what made you choose blueberries? Was there something in particular that drew you to blueberries? Well, yes, again, um, Tiffany, one of the things that I always feel is important is that, you you know, <laughs> you can't learn from a standing start. Uh, um, uh, you know, when you, when you grow, uh, when you've never been experienced at all, really, in growing any fruit, um, the, the the attraction to, of blueberries was that actually it took three or four it takes two or three years I should say to get from a uh, from no production to, to sort of a relatively good production and in that time you've got a good amount of time to learn the tricks of the trade. Now <clears throat> the tricks of the trade are in fact quite uh, uh, you know there, there's it's all and basically involves building tunnels and uh, maintaining tunnels, but planting and all that sort of thing. And again, I think if it had gone into strawberry production, which is quite a mature crop, uh, mature in terms of the market, I would say, uh, you know, there's a lot of people doing stro uh, strawberries um, throughout the country. And I, think yeah. it, I felt it was a, a mature market. And when I when I first looked at this, I, I spoke to um, Angus Soft Fruits, again, another organization to whom we are, are affiliated uh, and, uh, and they suggested or, or encouraged me to, to, to look at the blueberries as a, as, a, as a crop to grow rather than strawberries or, uh, or raspberries for that matter. So, yeah, so do you want to tell us a bit more about the Angus soft fruits? Yeah, again, Angus soft fruits are uh, basically a company that uh, are uh, marketing all types of fruit throughout the UK, in fact, and um, they're, they're leaders in the field. Um, growing strawberries and uh, more, well, raspberries, strawberries, blackcurrants, you name it, and uh, quite recently uh, blueberries. But they also have a, a, a growers organisation, a growers group called Angus Growers, which is in fact another cooperative. But I'm not a member of that yet. Uh, but that's they're the guys that are um, effectively marketing the crop for me. So who do you sell your crop to? Does that go to the Angus Soft Fruits, or does it yeah, go Angus somewhere Soft else? Or directly? Yeah, they, they pack it, pack it. Sorry, they pack it. Yeah, and uh, uh, put it into little punnets and what have you, and then it usually ends up in, well, it ends up most supermarkets. Actually, it's quite nice occasionally just to walk in, <laughs> find a supermarket that's got your name on it with uh, uh, Roxburghshire blueberries, which is very satisfying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you went to get, go into blueberries, what did you have to do? Did you have to go and get a bank loan? Did you have to make a good business plan? What kind of research did you do? Well, as you can well imagine, it was quite expensive to set up. So I spoke to my friendly banker and we agreed various uh, terms about how it was to be done. Uh, so, yes, yep. yeah, I'm beholden to my bank manager for a few more years to come, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But in terms of research, yes, it was... A question of just uh, going and uh, having a chat with the guys uh, that would be supplying. Um, they furnished me with a, a relatively simple um, cash projection and all the rest of it. And um, 
how they built the business plan from there. And again, it's quite interesting to see how business plans uh, that you put on paper, how they actually materialize in the real in the real world. We had some challenges. Literally, uh, the first winter where we had the beast from the east, and uh, that was a little bit depressing when suddenly uh, uh, we lost um, quite a lot of our tunnels through snow damage, and uh, that was actually quite demoralizing. So that kind of put us back on the back foot very, very quickly. Uh, that Friday morning wasn't the best morning. Uh, I remember coming, going down and discovering that uh, the, the wind had the, sorry, the snow had literally collapsed the tunnels. So that was, <laughs> we'd only just literally the week before put uh, put the skins back on them uh, for them to be found with uh, uh, them lying on the ground wasn't very wasn't very good. <laughs> not not a good start. Not a good no, start. It wasn't. No, it wasn't. So since then, what other challenges have you encountered doing it? Well, again, I think the beast from the east was was actually. Uh, very, very demoralizing, and um, I can imagine, of, you know, uh, well, we're all used to farming where there's ups and downs and disasters in the world, uh, and, and it, it can be a, a very humbling business uh, trying to deal with the weather, as most of us farmers know, uh, through, the, and it's all usually the, the weather, that or often is the weather that can be a problem, and again, we, we suffered another misfortune with wind howling through the uh, the tunnels not long uh, after we'd taken the skins off one year and uh, it managed to uh, <laughs> yeah, um, cause a, a more damage to some, some plants that were uh, exposed to the wind. So again, it's that's, that's the two major challenges that have been testing um, one's uh, resilience, if you can say that. Um, but I mean, apart from that, um, I would say it's been um, a relatively uh, positive experience, and you know, again, it's 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 nice when uh, people give you good feedback cause, uh, from your the actual crop that you're producing. Because again, I, um, we're able to sell some of our fruit to the local uh, uh, to local fruit shops and um, various other outlets, and you know, to get the feedback of uh, how much people enjoy. Um, eating local blueberries has been really, really quite rewarding, and uh, I, I, I've enjoyed that side of it immensely. And also, to have uh, a community of people living around the place during the summer months, you know, is is it's it's good in some ways. You know, you get a, a nice uh, buzz about the place, particularly when everybody's quite happy and content. And it's not always like that, particularly, but uh, when it is, it's it's nice to see all these people. Uh, living in um, in a small community on, on on the farm, if you know what I mean. Well, we're actually, to be fair, the rest of the rest of us, the rest of us on the farm are getting on with the rest of the jobs. You know, um, I can at times uh, get out of the way and get on with um, harvest of wheat and barley and, uh, and looking after the cattle and uh, with my brother Keith and and, and our other guys that are working on the farm. So sometimes it's. Uh, um, if you know what I mean. So uh, all these guys are busy harvesting broccoli or, or fruit or whatever, and the rest of us are getting on with the rest of the jobs. <laughs> that sounds like it works quite well then. Oh, it has its moments, but it can do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you're saying you work with your brother Keith as well. How does that mm -hmm. work? 
Yeah, well, Keith lives at Blakewell Farm, which is just uh, six miles away from here. And uh, he, he really looks after the cows. And uh, he, well, I say, he, he, he doesn't just do that, believe me. Um, so the pair of us effectively work together to run the business and uh, I kind of look after the vegetable side of it. Um, uh, and he looks after the, the, uh, the cows and uh, the rest of it, we kind of look after it as uh, together. But uh, um, we've got three full-time staff and uh, the remainder are all uh, casual labor that come and go but um uh he he's got 150 cows uh up the road um which he uh basically got calves in the spring and they're very commercial uh herd of cows there's nothing fancy about them at all but basically we are trying to uh operate that from up there and uh, we are on only seasonal grazers up there we don't have any security of tenure or anything like that on that farm uh, but we look after the grass uh, with our cows and that sort of thing. So that's how that kind of works. Complicated, but it works. So, but it sounds farm, good as, as long as it all well, fits together. It kind of roughly fits together. Sometimes it's a bit of a muddle, but it does work. <laughs> um, so you've got a lot of foreign workers which come over um, seasonally. So how have you found that this year with both COVID-19 and Brexit? Well, uh, I... <laughs> Back in March, uh, before we uh, went into lockdown or whatever, I was probably, uh, well, I was certainly more concerned about getting labour uh, this year because of the Brexit situation. And then, of course, the COVID-19 reared its ugly head. And at that point, I started to really panic about what was going to happen in terms of labour. Um, so... Uh, British Summer Fruits, amongst others, and uh, East of Scotland Growers and all the other people that were looking for seasonal workers all got together and put a, a large appeal out for uh, people to come forward from uh, the UK to come and uh, help us pick the uh, pick the, the, fruit, uh, the fruit and the veg. And we were actually very heartened and, uh, by the huge uh, positive response to that uh, appeal. And we had, uh, uh, yeah, I actually had over 100 um, people contact me directly uh, saying that they were, would be quite keen to, to, to work for me. However, of course, the, the timing of that for me was actually um, not right because we didn't actually start need, needing uh, serious numbers of people until um, uh, middle of August. So, so I had to, you know, I didn't need them. And as a result, we, we didn't have the... Uh, the um, the, the UK workers, but um, we were lucky in that uh, the, co the company that we organise our labour through uh, had still got good contact with, uh, or at least a, um, there seemed to be a, a huge demand still from uh, Eastern European people to come over to the UK and, and, and pick the crop from my point of view. And again, that was uh, uh, still the case throughout the rest, of the, well, most of the country anyway. I mean, uh, there were labour shortages, don't get me wrong. There was a lot of problems with getting people through the, the COVID procedures, making sure that there was nobody uh, carrying the problem. Uh, or, And again, of course, uh, biosecurity was a, was a massive uh, thing we all had to think about. And it, it, it um, certainly brought it into focus when uh, a farm down in, I can't remember where it was, was it Cheshire? 
I think, uh, came down with a case of COVID in, on its farm and, and overnight our production was ceased. Now, if that had happened here at David's Mill, uh, it would have been catastrophic for me personally as a, as a business and uh, I can afford that to happen. So we were quite careful in that we uh, had to, uh, well, we just basically were making sure that folk were well uh, every day and also uh, making sure that they were, they were living in a bit of a bubble. And frankly, um, it was quite easy to maintain that bubble because when they live on a farm at Cave at the Mill with no cars of their own, it was only uh, by organised transport that they could get to go and shop and all the rest of it. So uh, having got them here, uh, it was quite, uh, um, I wouldn't say easy, but it was, it was uh, less of a worry about them coming out with that bubble. Um, uh, we, we also made sure that you know they answered as best they can a proper uh, risk assessment. Well, sorry, we did a proper risk assessment for the uh, COVID before they came on uh, came into work, etc. So, so we tried our best. Uh, I wouldn't say we were hundred um, percent um, rigorous uh, all the time, but it certainly uh, was something that we had to take great care of this year. Yeah, you've definitely had to do what you can with that. Yeah, yeah. I think by the sounds of it, you have been very fortunate about having that bubble. Well, that's it. And again, uh, that bubble was um, <laughs> compromised a couple of times simply because we actually had problems with people leaving uh, the farm early. And again, one of the challenges with this um, lack of, I think you, I was talking earlier about the seasonal agricultural worker scheme being disbanded. And, and because of that, it means that people can uh, choose to leave their job um, at a whim and um, we have had over the last two or three years uh, people particularly from Lithuania, Latvia and all the rest of it just for whatever reason deciding that they need to go home and that can cause a massive amount of uh, problems uh, when suddenly you've got three or four people who haven't turned up to work the next day and uh, it's just because yeah so so we've had to get other people from other agencies and coming and going all the time. And that has been a massive challenge. And I think, again, this leads into the, the, the Europe um, scenario and uh, what we're going to do next year. But, it, you know, there's a huge amount of work being done by our NFUS and various other organizations, in fact, the NFU of England and, uh, and other organizations, trying to make sure that there is a replacement for the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Scheme uh, going to be... Uh, uh, restarted. I think um, there, there has been a pilot scheme for the last couple of years, but we are needing tens of thousands of people to come back into the country next year to, to pick the, the, the um, British uh, fruit and vegetables. And I think the only way that it can happen, uh, or at least the most reliable way it can happen, is, is for the, the government to, to recognise that uh, the seasonal agricultural worker scheme or a similar thing like it that we had in the past is, is the way forward. Yep. Do you find it difficult if you wanted to try and find local workers? Is it difficult getting them to do jobs like picking the broccoli? Well, I think it uh, is safe to say that um, uh, it is difficult to get people uh, as, as committed um, to, to, uh, to doing the job. It is a physically hard job, and it can be quite monotonous. Um, but similarly, it can be quite rewarding. 
but again, it takes a certain type of person for uh, to be able to, to to stick at that job, and um, and we have found that people that have come from the locality uh, have decided for whatever reason that it's not for them, and uh, they may stick at it for a couple of days, but you know they do they can't visit or they've got opportunities elsewhere now. Um, again, when you're running a business like this, when the crop is so uh, dependent on, um, on uh, you know, on it being harvested that day, uh, then, then uh, you know, we can't afford for that to happen. So, you know, this is where we're looking uh, in the next few years at trying to automate the job as much as possible. And we're currently in uh, um, discussion with a company to try and See ways, see ways we can move forward with with automation, and I think actually that that is definitely the way forward, particularly for the vegetables. It's maybe not quite uh, as critical yet for the for the blueberries, but certainly for the for the, the broccoli, it's something that we really need to be looking at. Um, it's not it's not as easy as uh, it's not that simple yet. I had to be said, but hopefully it will be coming in a few. Uh, in a matter of years. Yeah, okay. Um, you also said that you do some contract farming. Can you tell us a bit more about yeah. that? Well, I mean, that again is uh, um, basically looking after um, somebody's farm on a contracting basis. So all we're doing is literally look, uh, and doing the, all the arable work on that farm. Uh, as I said to you earlier, though, the, uh, the grass that is on that farm is... Um, is, is let, on, let to us on a seasonal basis where we where we keep our cows. So it's a very simple system where we look after the land uh, for the owner of that um, land and uh, hopefully both parties are relatively satisfied by the way it works. And there are various examples of people doing much the same thing throughout the country, uh, throughout the, well, the borders even. And uh, yeah. we were just, we were just, that's just one of our uh, facets to the business. Yeah, good. Um, so what do you think are the biggest challenges that Scottish farmers face at the minute? Oh, well, I think the, the biggest one is coming at the end of the year, isn't it? Um, with Brexit. <laughs> God knows what the hell's going to happen after that. Excuse my French. Uh, sorry, I'll start that again. So I think the biggest challenge that's going to uh, happen uh, uh, is going to happen in the next few weeks. And that is, of course, the, the realities of uh, the Brexit uh, deal that may or may not happen. Now, farming is um, very, very challenging at the best of times, and, and uncertainty that is being faced by all of us in the industry is, is, is very, very worrying, um, uh, particularly, I think, if you're a livestock producer. Um, uh, so it, it is, is a, well, in fact, all types of uh, farming in Scotland is could be severely affected by the decisions made by our government in a few weeks' time. The uh, other one, of course, is in fact climate change, and uh, you know we actually happen to farm on a on a, a floodplain down here. Um, some of our land is on a floodplain, and we have noticed more and more instances of flooding over the last few years, and of course the extremes of weather that we've all been feeling. Um, for one, one minute we're getting the, the driest spell possible in the spring and the next minute we're getting the, the wettest October in living memory. So this is the huge challenge that we all face and I 
I don't have the answers for that, sadly, but it's something that is going to be affecting everybody uh, in agriculture yep. uh, one way or another. It is having a huge impact. So are you making any changes to how you're doing things like on your floodplain um, because you think that it's more likely to flood or anything? Well, Tiffany, I have to say, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I haven't actually um, faced that uh, problem if i'm honest with you yet i i it's something i haven't felt i had enough um <laughs> sorry i think i should i'll go back i'll rewind a minute sorry but uh, right That's ask okay. me the question again sorry <laughs> <laughs> um right so you were saying hold on i've lost myself as well um yeah. So, yeah, climate change is a big problem now. Do you feel that you're making any changes or adapting your systems um, to take into account the various weathers? Well, Tiffany, if I'm perfectly honest with you, I, I felt I've had a lot of challenges in my in the last four years or so with, with setting up the blueberries. I, I maybe have taken my eye off the ball when it comes to looking looking at uh, opportunities to, to mitigate um, climate uh, change and the likes of uh, the, the, the problems that it poses. So that's something I, I, I need to look at. I need to, I need to start to address and, and think of ways that we could be helping to mitigate the effects of climate change in our farm. Yeah, okay. So that's something to work towards then. Um, so for the likes of Brexit, how do you think your business is set to deal with the challenges which it might, might throw up? Well, I actually hope that being a relatively diversified business with fruit and veg, that we are, well, we're not going to be immune, don't get me wrong, we're far from immune, but um, particularly the fruit, I see the one of the biggest issues that we have with fruit is, is our imp the imports that are coming in from blueberries all over the all over the world. Now, if we could control that, or at least um, have some sort of, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I just hope that um, the, um, our country will get behind British produce, and and, and uh, there'll be a, a great uh, opportunity for farmers to to exploit. No, sorry, that's the wrong word, but we don't want to be ever exploiting our <laughs> our customers in the UK, but uh, certainly um, make them more aware of home-produced produce. And I think broccoli and uh, blueberries, for that matter, and for that matter, uh, sheep, uh, cat beef and lamb and uh, cereals, uh, you know, that are produced in this country will hopefully have a, a, a bright future for our home home customers. Yes, definitely, definitely. Hopefully, people have become more aware of where foods come from, especially yeah, after think, Brexit, think, think and the importance of supporting locals. Yeah, I, th I think there is definitely a feeling uh, our, our great British public are actually becoming more and more aware of uh, the benefits of looking after or eating pro home-produced produce. And, uh, you know, we do have some of the best produce in the world and, and certainly the best standards of production in the world. Um, and I think it, it's it's um, there's some hope there. I mean, while the the, the challenges are always going to be uh, huge uh, post Brexit, I think uh, we've got to look at the opportunities and the op and uh, slight bit of optimism in there as well. Yep. Uh, so Neil, what drives you personally? Why do you do what you do? 
<laughs> well, I mean, I, I think actually, uh, yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, keeps you going is the fact that you're looking after uh, this family farm. I mean, this farm, well, we're only tenants of the Roxburgh Estates here. It's still, nevertheless, my family home and uh, my family have been farming here since uh, mid-twenties and um, before that we were also tenants of the Roxburgh Estates and another farm. But uh, what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, the the heritage of that is, is I think, valuable and I, I hope that someday my successors will be uh, uh, wanting to take over and look after this place, albeit, you know, in their own time. I don't have any, uh, there's no rush for them to do so, but the point being that um, what keeps me going is the fact that, you know, we are lucky to be living where we do and in an environment that is, while it's challenging, it's still very rewarding at times. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so do you have any long-term business plans or are you just planning to adapt to what gets thrown at you? <laughs> I think, I think uh, uh, you have to be fast on your feet at times. There's no doubt about it. And when there's an opportunity there, you take it. If there's, uh, Sometimes it's better, though, to batten down the hatches and crack on uh, and, 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 and get things done and do things better every year. And I think sometimes I'm guilty of, uh, of um, moving into a challenge doing things that are not necessarily uh, after having, you need, one needs to consolidate at times. So I think, you know, and I'm certainly at an age now where, you know, I'm, what am I, mid 50, something like that, goodness me. Um, you know, uh, one, one must be thinking, uh, do be careful what one t- touches now, if you know what I mean? <laughs> no, that's not, <laughs> not a very good answer. But uh, if you know what I mean, I, I think um, I've got enough on my plate at the moment to, to but you never know. You never know. I'm, I'm personally involved and uh, I'm lucky enough to be involved in other other things, particularly the Royal Ham, the Culture Society of Scotland. So I'm involved in that at the moment. And, and that's something that I, I take a great deal of pleasure and uh, from, despite the challenges, of course, that that's facing at the moment. It is still otherwise a hugely rewarding experience for me personally and something that I, 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 I want to pursue because I, I actually believe and so much of what that organisation does benefits not just um, Scottish farmers, but uh, the reputation of Scottish farmers throughout the, the world, and something that you know we should be uh, encouraging. Yeah, that sounds good. You're definitely keeping very busy. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Thank you, Neil, for taking the time to talk to me today and providing such an interesting insight into your farming business. You can find out more about the Farm Advisory Service and the work we're doing by visiting our website, www.fas.scot. Or if you need advice, call the helpline on 0300 323 0161.